We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. I'm your host, Gavin Phipps, and I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular commentators Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Michael Fahey. Great to be here. And we'll be jumping straight in today with Thursday's events in the Legislative UN, when lawmakers were sworn in and then voted to elect a new Speaker and Deputy Speaker. And they elected, drumroll please, the KMT's Hang Guo Yu as the new Legislative Speaker and KMT lawmaker Johnny Jung as his Deputy Speaker. Now Han and Jung won with a plurality of 54 votes following a two-candidate runoff after the backing of all 52 KMT lawmakers and two independents. Now Yoshi Kun and Tsai Chi Chung received 51 votes, all of which came from DPP lawmakers. Now, the runoff was triggered after the eight Taiwan People's Party lawmakers cast their ballots in the first round for lawmaker Huang Shan Shan and Zhang Chi Kai, leaving no candidates with a required majority. Now, the TPP's lawmakers abstained from casting any ballots in the second round. And speaking after being elected, Hang Guo Yu said that he fully understands the responsibilities that come with the post and he will work to lead a legislative UN that seeks to create, and I quote, create happiness for for Taiwanese people. Han also extended his gratitude to outgoing speaker Yoshi Kun, saying that he made a great contribution to Taiwan's democracy over the past 42 years. Meanwhile, Yoshi Kun actually resigned as a legislature at large after losing his speakership post. Yo announced his resignation on social media with a typed announcement stating that he will leave the legislature today as we're recording this show. His slot as a DPP legislature at large will now be filled by the next candidate in line on the list, who is expected to be one Chung Shu, the chairman of the Hope Foundation for Cancer Care. Now, the Taiwan People's Party on Wednesday announced that its lawmakers would not be backing either the KMT or the DPP candidates for the speakership and instead be casting their ballots for Huang Shan Shan due to the KMT and DPP responses to a series of proposals pushing for transparency and oversight reforms in the legislature. Those proposals were put to the KMT and DPP legislative speaker and deputy speaker candidates earlier in the week. And the TPP is seeking cooperation on four proposals. Those proposals include the revising of rules on penalties for officials who give false testimony at hearings, prohibiting agencies from blocking lawmaker access to documents, preventing lawmakers from acting on bills that constitute a conflict of interest, and requiring the legislative speaker to detail his or her use of a special stripend. Now, speaking to reporters on Wednesday, Huang Shan Shan also accused certain individuals within the KMT and DPP of resorting to threats and slander in an attempt to influence how the TPP caucus members would vote, which she said left the party disillusioned about the prospect of introducing any reform to the legislative UN. So, Brian, did Mr Han's election come as a surprise or did you sort of think it could happen? Not particularly. The KMT signaled that Han was its likely candidate for president by placing him at the number one position on the, the uh, party list. And so it's not exactly a surprise. And this was something that the DPP focused fire on, saying that, well, if we don't get the majority in the legislature, then perhaps Han will become the president, and that could have disastrous impacts on Taiwan's democracy. And so it's not surprising then. And I think particularly the KMT naming Han to that position is to appeal to a certain demographic in the KMT that is very still adulatory of Han in spite of the fact that he lost the 2020 election and was recalled by large margins thereafter as the mayor of Kaohsiung. Uh, and in this respect, then, it is not surprising then that his, uh, his uh, run then for president became a lightning rod issue. And it did pan out as it expected, I think, with these splits that exist in the legislature with no party holding the majority. But, Michael, the TPP pulled a fast one, or maybe not such a fast one. 
the TPP didn't really get what they want, which is to play the pivotal third-party role. In the end, there was no deal made with the TPP by either party, so the two major parties voted based on their respective strengths in the legislature, and Han Guoyu won as expected. I, I think it highlights the distrust that both of the major parties feel about the TPP and suggests that the TPP may have difficulty getting uh, support for the reforms that it wants to push through. So I think Huang Shanshan will need to get used to being disillusioned unless the, DP, uh, the TPP is willing to change its highly idealistic and arguably attention-seeking approach. But Michael, I mean, had the TPP cast ballots in the second round and voted for Yoshi Kun, could this have put them in a good position with the DPP? Of course, they would have irked the KMT. It could well have put them in a good position with the DPP. But I think the problem is that there needs to be a deal. And in order to have a deal, you have to have trust. And nobody trusts the TPP. The uh, Koenja uh, turned on the DPP after the DPP helped him get elected mayor of Taipei. The DPP feels they can't work with him, and many DPP supporters uh, would be very unhappy if the DPP did support the TPP. Uh, Another problem for the TPP itself is that it doesn't want to be seen as a small blue party or a small green party too early on. So it had reasons not to get into a deal. But yes, it it could have gotten maybe cabinet seats. It maybe could have gotten a deal with the DPP to put forward some of those reforms, uh, like the things on the stipends or conflicts of interest. I think all those things were in play and impossible. But so far, the TPP is not showing that it knows how to accumulate and wield power. So, Brian, do you think the TPP has blown getting a position in the cabinet? I guess we'll have to see, but it seems very unlikely, I think. And I think uh, what is interesting, because, yeah, the TPP does hope to play the quote-unquote kingmaker position, balancing between the DPP and KMT. They didn't make any king here. Exactly. (laughs) And so instead, sometimes what happens is perhaps the flip side might happen, where they come under attack by both parties or face pressure from both parties and aren't really able to push for anything. And so going for Huang Shanshan is a safe choice. I mean, the TPP does need to, as mentioned, uh, differentiate itself from either the DPP and the KMT. And so going for Huang, who actually was not really positioning herself to become the speaker or a serious candidate in in that sense, uh, is a safe choice. But then uh, it did not allow for deal making and the TPP kind of just was not able to get anything it wanted through in that sense. But, Brian, I mean, eventually they will have to do deals. Obviously, lawmakers are going to have to pass bills, yeah? So, Hmm. eventually, unless they want the KMT, the Pan Blues, to win every vote in the legislature concerning every bill that could come across their table, the TPP is going to have to deal with the DPP and also with the KMT, vice versa. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because the KMT does want to apply more pressure to the TPP to ensure that it does act in coordination with it. Uh, but then, of course, the TPP's priorities are going to be elsewhere. It does not want to become just something smaller, a sidekick party of the KMT that's no different from it. Uh, so it does need to side with the DPP on certain issues. But then there's the risk of alienating elements of the party base that are quite unhappy with the DPP and voted for the TPP because of the view that is anti-establishment, that it will take a stance against the DPP. And so then I think it might be actually between a rock and a hard place there in some sense. The problem with the TPP is that at some point, it's going to need to give something to the other parties because the other parties don't trust it. So it has to build trust by committing to things and doing things. What it did in these negotiations was just the opposite. It released a series of demands. It asked both parties to come and talk about them or sign on to them. And it claimed that it was dissatisfied. It didn't with their commitments to do so. And so it ended up voting for its own candidate. That's not really the way to build trust for a party that's notorious for doing things like the uh, the, the meeting at the, the Grand Hyatt for example. The KMT and the DPP have a fundamental interest in squeezing the oxygen away from the TPP. They can live with the TPP languishing in obscurity and not getting anything done. That's particularly in the interest of the DPP, because the DPP probably reasonably believes that the centrist and more nonpartisan voters out there who voted for the TPP are voters that the DBB has won before and could win again. So the DBP may very well be minded just to ignore the TPP as much as possible for the next four years and not give it any attention and let it wither away so that it can go for those voters next time. But then, Michael, could the KMT just step into the void and sway the TPP lawmakers into backing everything they do? They can try, uh, but then the TPP ends up being a little blue party, which discredits it. And I don't think the TPP is going to be able... The TPP, you can see, is being driven by Huang Guochang and his agenda, which is procedural reform, which is going to make the public's eyes glaze over incredibly quickly and is going to lead to a series of meetings where Huang Guochang or his allies are standing up arguing procedural points and getting in the way of any substantive legislative being passed. They're not going to be a great partner for the KMT either, even if they end up in the KMT's arms in the end. So, Brian, I guess instead of becoming the kingmaker party, they could become the spoiler party, just vetoing every bill that comes across in the chamber. It's possible. But then if so, I think that's not likely to win supporters for the TPP because you do want to have a positive program rather than just being negative and opposing everything. Um, I think what's interesting, though, is the TPP, many of its politicians are drawn from pan-blue backgrounds and they entered the TPP out of their own as a career move. They're not personally loyal to Coalinger, for example. And so if the KMP is actually able to entice them with something better, it is possible that fractures will start emerging within the party. And I think the interesting thing about someone like Huang Guochang is that similar to Ko, he actually reverse course from being greenish originally, coming out of the MPP, and being part of a light blue party, the TPP. And so that leads to distrust. But then I think uh, on both sides, actually, including the DPP, well, it doesn't trust him, but then also the KMT and will not trust him as someone that started off somewhere else. And so I think there is that uh, possibility. And Brian, what do we see Hang Yu doing in the coming weeks and months? Do we see him doing outrageous things, being rational and acting <laughs> as a mediator? 
I think it depends because he also does have to play to his base, and so I can't imagine him、uh, actually trying to alienate his base in that sense. He has been out of the political limelight since defeat in 2020 and his recall afterwards, and now he is back, and that is because of the fact that the Deep Blues and the KMT are quite happy with him, or they still support him.、Uh, but what is interesting is that historically, the KMT party leadership, including Eric Chu, did not. Particularly trust Tom, but then in this present moment, they sought to bring him back into the fold, put him on the number one the party list because that seemed like the best option to mobilize a certain section of the vote. And so I think it does depend on internal deal making and kind of factionalism within the KMT. But he'll try to appeal to his base, and、uh, he might try to come across as more moderate. He ran on a joint ticket with Johnny Chang, for example, who is a moderate,、uh, whereas he is perceived as more of a hardliner. And so he might moderate his image for a while, but then I think it's a question how he will play out things as time goes on. The election of Han will probably have two immediate implications. One is that during the past eight years, especially under Yoshi Kun, the legislature has played a very important role in Taiwan's diplomacy through what's called parliamentary diplomacy, and so that's why you see all these legislators from the Czech. Republic or a different Lithuania coming to Taiwan and doing exchanges. A lot of that's being funded by the Taiwan Foundation for Democracy, which the president of the Legislative Yuan is automatically the chairman of and controls. So I think that we're going to see a decline in parliamentary diplomacy for Taiwan. Although perhaps the executive branch can figure out other ways to do it. And then the other thing is that I believe that Han will facilitate the KMT's goal, which is one of the KMT's goals, which is not necessarily to pass any substantive legislative program, which. For sort of complicated reasons, legislators aren't really capable of doing. What they really want to do is turn the legislature into a investigation forum to expose the systematic corruption of the DPP that they say、uh, is everywhere in the submarine program and renewable energies. That was something they really wanted to brand the DPP with during the presidential election, but weren't very successful. Corruption is how they brought down Chen Shui-bian. They hoped to bring down Tsai Ing-wen with it. They failed, and they really want to produce evidence of this. So I think that his main goal is going to be facilitating a highly public series of investigations. I think so. I mean, one of the KMT、uh, campaign promises to revive the Special Investigation Division, and though we have seen the KMT unsuccessful in winning the presidency, this is still being brought up as an idea. And it's interesting too, because I think they also are kind of reconfiguring the idea to include other demands. For example, the Special Investigation Division—that's on political corruption. It investigates political corruption. It doesn't really have to do with capital punishment. But then the framing is sometimes that, well, we're also going to push through capital punishment through this, which is a bit strange.、Uh, but I think this is perhaps an interesting point of fracture then between the TPP and the KMT, because so far the TPP is not on board with the idea. And I think that'll be another kind of room for decision making and jockeying, in spite of the fact that you do have TPP politicians such as Huang Guochang criticizing the DPP for corruption and making such allegations. And so I think it'll, it'll be kind of interesting to see how that plays out. But that's still something the KMT is very intent on doing. This is a place that the TPP could make a good deal with the KMT. What they would want to do is to get the KMT to agree to contempt of Congress. Or 
perjury in front of the Congress so that you can punish especially officials who lie. And then in exchange, the TPP would facilitate a series of hearings in the legislature to investigate the submarine or other alleged corruption. And I think that's something that the TPP would be very interested in working with the KMT on. And Brian, of course, Michael earlier said the foreign parliamentary groups from Czech Republic, Lithuania, while they were plentiful in coming here under Yoshi Kun, do you think they'll be queuing up to see Hang Yu? Or do you think maybe even Hang Yu will think about this and go, oh, maybe I could give Johnny Jung the role to be liaising with these groups? It is a question, actually, because I think uh, the KMT has not put a lot of priority where diplomatic relations are concerned, actually, under this administration, uh, because it is almost leftist to become the fiefdom of the side administration. There's the much vaunted pivot towards the U.S. under Eric Chu, which didn't really work out. Uh, but then in terms of, for example, European countries, I don't know. There are you know bipartisan meetings that occur, but I don't think the KMT has put a lot of priority there. And so I don't think there's a very coherent strategy where the KMT is concerned. Uh, but what is interesting is that there are precedents in terms of the kind of role the TFD was playing regarding, let's say, Southeast Asian civil society in the past, where there were these ties existed. And then uh, under Chen Shui-bian, this was the TFD was a vehicle for strengthening these ties. Uh, but when Ma took power, a lot of this ended. And so that could also take place. We do see a kind of divided outcome with the legislature that Taiwan Foundation for Democracy itself has an arrangement where it's based on proportional representation in the legislature that is who decides, that who becomes on its board. Uh, but then uh, in terms of Han being the president, I mean, he may not be interested in these exchanges with civil society. And I think particularly from Southeast Asian civil society, there's also awareness of the KMT's political stances. There will be awareness, actually, of, for example, uh, the relation to China and cautious of the TFD as such. So I think that actually does influence uh, kind of the diplomacy of Taiwan going forward in that sense. And Michael, I mean, could the KMT do with another Wang Jinping? I don't see Han Guoyu playing a similar role as Wang Jinping <laughs> did. Wang Jinping was uh, a unique dealmaker at the extremely experienced legislature who could work with everyone and outside of his own home district in Kaohsiung didn't really have a national base the way that he had to play to the way Han Guoyu did. I can't see Han Guoyu, for example, um, barring the police from removing students who broke into the legislature like Wang Jinping did. Uh, I also believe that uh, Han Guoyu has relatively good relations with the KMT, unlike Wang Jinping, who always had a very tense relationship with Ma Ying-jeou, who in fact tried to kick him out of the party. Uh, we don't see that. The, I, I think that with Han Guoyu, there's just a couple of things. I don't think we're going to be seeing resolutions supporting you know, democracy in Burma under Han Guoyu. I don't think that we're going to see Han Guoyu in going out of his way to invite uh, parliamentarians from India, for example, who are quite interested in building up relations with Taiwan. There was an old idea back in uh, the Ma administration of maybe doing parliamentary explain exchanges with China and the National People's Congress. And it's a little hard for me to believe that he will bring that up, but you never know. I would point out that there's a whole bevy of KMT apparitchniks and legislatures who've done graduate studies in China. One of their favorites is uh, Jinan University in Guangzhou. But Han Guoyu, uh, who studied, I'm not sure for how long, in a PhD class 
at Beijing University during his time in the political wilderness is the first one who has studied in China and has gotten into a role as the head of a branch of government. It's pretty significant. Brian, I mean, if Han Guoyu tries to do this, how do you see the major- the public reacting to it? I mean, obviously, we have to say um, more people voted against the DPP than for the DPP at the election, yeah? Because the DPP has a 40% base. So how do you think the majority of people who didn't vote for the DPP will take to Han Guoyu doing this type of thing that Michael just did? Yeah, it is a question, because uh, I think the public may react against it. It depends on how it is framed. Uh, the KMT has leaned very much into the older narratives regarding return to tourism will benefit Taiwan, which should get the Chinese tourists back. Exchanges. Yes, exchanges, but also student exchanges as well. Uh, and then the DPP has sometimes alleged that, well, the KMT is prioritizing Chinese students over the the employment opportunities for Taiwanese students. Uh, and that kind of back and forth, I think, which is quite familiar, then takes place. But I also do think the KMT perhaps will get eager and alienate the public in some way. I think sometimes optics have not worked out. And between Wang Jinping and that time 10 years ago when he was in power and the present, I think the KMT's PR machine is not as functional as it was a decade ago. I'm afraid that I'm in a rare position of disagreeing with Brian slightly. <laughs> If Han Guoyu tried to do exchanges with the National People's Congress in China, I believe there would be massive demonstrations around the legislative UN. Perhaps not quite sunflower level, but but definitely risking it. And moving on now, the Civil Aviation Administration on Tuesday protested China's announcement to unilaterally adjust flight routes close to the median line of the Taiwan Strait. The administration said that it deeply regrets and strongly protests Beijing's move as it blatantly contradicts a consensus reached between both sides of the Taiwan Strait in 2015. The statement came after the Civil Aviation Administration of China announced it was cancelling what it called offset measures for the southbound operation of the M503 flight route, which is west of the median line of the Taiwan Strait. Now, the changes were introduced on Thursday, and the Chinese aviation body also started eastbound operations of routes W122 and W123, which connect the M503 route with Fuzhou and Shaman cities in Fujian province. The Mainland Affairs Council also protested at the move, saying that new flight routes not only disregarded aviation safety, they showed disrespect for Taiwan. They also appear to be a deliberate attempt to use civil aviation as a cover for political and possibly military intentions. Now, Transport Minister Wang Guotsai also warned that China's adjustments to its flight paths in the Taiwan Strait could potentially affect aviation safety around Jingmen and Matsu. So, Brian, of course, China did this before, we should say. This is not the first time China has fiddled with the flight routes. Yeah, that's right. And so this previously became a matter of controversy not only in 2015, but also 2018. And so I think it is quite interesting that as we see a new presidential administration uh, inbound, then the same issue has come up yet again. And so 2015, of course, that is under Ma. And then in 2018, that's under Tsai. And now we have Lai coming in. So it's uh, not the first time, but I think what's interesting to look at is compared to the past and the present is that the uh, tensions regarding uh, military activity by China are so much higher compared to a decade ago or even just uh, a few years ago. And so I think that particularly then with uh, the flight route and the fact that then this means planes will be passing very close to the median line of the Taiwan Straits is another way in which China then blends, let's say, uh, security concerns with civilian uh, air aviation and using this as a way to pressure the uh, government in Taiwan. And this takes us at a time in which, for example, there's concern about uh, gray zone tactics by Chinese vessels, uh, sand dredging, uh, integration of the uh, c- civilian and military operations for naval vessels and maritime vessels, and 
And now we see this regarding uh, planes and civilian aircraft. And so this is something that I think it's not surprising that the government would react strongly to. Uh, but I think sometimes the government doesn't really have an ability to push back because China does have the heft in the world where it can declare what it wants and then impose its will in that way. It was notable how the a lot of the reaction in Taiwan actually came from the military, mm. who seems to be concerned about possibly the use of civilian aircraft to cover military aircraft and reduce response time. For China, this is just another step, a minor one, but similar to the way that they now completely disregard the median line that once separated the forces in the in the Taiwan Strait. And so, or, for example, the way they have reportedly stationed four warships permanently around Taiwan. The noose is tightening. This is a very slight tighten. And I could imagine a scenario where someone from the KMT is able to go to China, perhaps the mayor of Taichung, uh, and make a deal with China where China pulls back on this and then the KMT can look like it's the one that can responsibly deal with China or perhaps Han Guoyu could bring some Chinese parliamentarians over and this could be the result of their meeting. So I, I think it's a chip that China has created for itself out of nothing that now Taiwan has to bargain for or respond to. It's it's a smart strategy. I don't really see what Taiwan can do about this. I mean, what's Taiwan going to do that won't hurt it itself even more than it hurts China? Is Taiwan going to stop flights to uh, to China? No. Is Taiwan going to cut the three mini links with Jinmen in, in revenge? Probably not. That's not going to go over well in Taiwan. So I think that Taiwan will probably just have to live with this latest indignity and tiny salami slice that China has done again. And we're going to see more of these. Uh, in respect, then, the moves that Taiwan can take are limited. And it takes place in the same time frame as China stepping up various other efforts to intimidate Taiwan. For example, the balloons that pass over Taiwan. And I think this, is a, this was something that increased in number and frequency before the elections as a way to pressure Taiwan without necessarily crossing the line that, let's say, using warplanes or more overt military threat would. I think that was also in awareness of all the controversy that followed when the balloon passed over the U.S., uh, knowing as a profile then to target Taiwan and uh, register a threat in that way. And so I think particularly the military is concerned uh, regarding just, again, the possible use of uh, civilian aircraft for military purposes, but then also the possibility of an accident. And I think that is quite dangerous in the uh, Taiwan Straits, in which you do have civilian aircraft, then that perhaps will be scrutinized, raise the odds of an accident. But then I think China is quite okay with this. And I think Taiwan has not developed a very good repertoire in many ways. It's limited in how it can respond to this kind of attempt to pressure it. And Brian, do you think, like Michael said, a KMT person or someone of that ilk will go to China or bring some Chinese people here and a deal could be made? 
it's possible, but I think it does depend on to what extent the public does react to it. And uh, the military has reacted, but I'm not sure about the general public. I don't think it's as wide, uh, it doesn't provoke as wide responses as, for example, banning Taiwanese agricultural products or beverages or snacks, uh, which was a similar move, actually, which you can create an opportunity then for the Pam Blue Camp to go over and negotiate and give them a win in this sense. But I think that there's not as much focus on this. I think because civilian uh, aviation is actually someone Taiwan has tried to push for more membership in international institutions, but I'm not too sure how that gets off the ground in terms of the general public or reactions to it. This individual issue is highly technical and likely to cause the public to fall asleep, but <laughs> it needs to be seen in the totality of all the things China is doing to put pressure on Taiwan right now. There's this air route issue. There's the diplomatic derecognition of Taiwan by Nauru and quite possibly by Tuvalu coming up and quite po and possibly even Guatemala next. There's the ECFA products, which are now going to have Terra snap back on. There's uh, ships that are suddenly turning and coming closer to Taiwan. There are civilian vessels, which may have even impinged on Taiwanese territorial water. It's a whole calibrated program on all fronts of security, lawfare, and politics at once. And it's it's very impressive in how persistent, consistent, and sustained it is. And Taiwan is really going to have its work cut out to explain to the public what's happening. And moving away from China and politics at a legislative level now, and President Tsai Ing-wen on Monday described the development of a new superconducting quantum computer as being a significant stride in Taiwan's quantum technology. The statement came as Academia Sinica was reporting on the progress in research made by its thematic centre for quantum computers. And speaking at a forum organised to highlight the research programme, Tsai lauded the breakthrough as a testament to Taiwan's prowess in the field. Now, the plan was a initiated by Academia Sinica over three years ago, and the new computer was developed through a quantum technology project funded by the National Science and Technology Council. Academia Sinica said that it partnered with the Industrial Technology Research Institute and the National Applied Research Laboratories, as well as several local and American universities. Now, the new quantum computer is currently providing online services to program participants and also being used by developers as a platform for developing complementary metal oxide semiconductor and parametric amplifier technologies. So, Michael, you can explain what all that was about. There's a big pause here as he thinks about it. Quantum computing has the long-term potential to be able to solve certain kinds of problems, especially mathematical ones, faster than the computers that we use today. But it's probably not going to have any commercial or real-world applications for a decade or so, because there are all kinds of problems with the stability and actually creating the, the hardware. This is something that's really in its infancy. But it is quite significant that 
the U.S. Uh, spent billions of dollars, or actually primarily private U.S. companies, to build the first quantum computers just three or four years ago. And Taiwan got started uh, just a couple of years ago and spent $200 million and is now uh, able to produce its own quantum computer. And it did so in it's very interesting because it did so in combination with a whole host of universities and uh, world and research centers worldwide. And the people on the program are quite interesting because they didn't go to, you know, Berkeley or the places that you would expect people to go. And some of them, one of the heads of the program is completely educated here in Taiwan. And it's kind of secondary institutions in Taiwan, like the Zhanghua Institute of Technology and that kind of thing that are involved. So it, it kind of shows the depth and the breadth of Taiwan's ability to be pretty close to the cutting edge without spending tremendous amounts of money. And its significance for Taiwan is that Taiwan needs to know about this stuff. You notice the applications they're talking about, the semiconductor nitrous oxide complementary. This is this is an application in semiconductor. It's central to semiconductor technology. So it makes total sense that Taiwan wants to use quantum computing to improve its semiconductor industry. I'm not quite sure what the uh, paramedic amplifiers are. It, that may just be a device for doing more quantum-based uh, research, but it potentially has a... They go to 11. They go to 11, yeah. yeah. They go to 11 for quantum. Uh, but they, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a real, uh, you know, it's something that I think might be possibly used in the tools that make semiconductors, which is something Taiwan is very interested in getting into and then and then finally another aspect of the quantum technology plan is is its role in encryption because one of the concerns about quantum computing is that it could break all the encryption that we have so there are startups in Taiwan and uh, centers in Taiwan, like Tsinghua University, has developed uh, quantum encryption for network applications that could make networks more. So it, it has also important applications in the field of security as well. So it makes a lot of sense that Taiwan is doing this. And it's impressive that Taiwan is able to do so much with so little. So, Brian, I mean, do you think Taiwan's known for its semiconductors? Do you think in a couple of years Taiwan could become known for its quantum computers? Well, it's a good question because, again, yes, the technology is in its infancy. But I think particularly semiconductors have set the template for the role that Taiwan hopes to have with any newly emergent technology. Uh, Taiwan doesn't want to lose out because they're concerned about losing out to China in particular, but also broader uh, issues regarding competitiveness. Uh, Taiwan wants to leverage the strengths in terms of tech. And it also wants to identify what the key technologies are that could determine the future. Semiconductors is an example of when Taiwan played its cards right, apparently, several decades ago, and now is in this position now where the world supply chains are concerned. And so Taiwan doesn't want to lose out on any new technology, and so trying to get into the quantum game is, is makes sense in that regard. Uh, and I think in terms of leveraging the existing capacities of educational institutions in Taiwan, that's another example as well. And of course, Brian Michael mentioned they did it on the cheap. Uh, yeah, that's right. And I think particularly Taiwan is completely aware that it can never outspend some of the larger countries in the world. And so how to do things effectively and efficiently, that's another question. And so I think particularly then uh, Taiwan wants to get in on new technologies in order to maneuver itself into a advantageous position. 
And moving away from all that technical jargon, now more than a dozen environmental groups on Tuesday lodged a joint petition with a constitutional court calling on the government to take more action on intergenerational climate justice. Now, according to the Environmental Rights Foundation, which was one of the petitioners, although the Climate Change Response Act was passed in 2023, it failed to include short- and medium-term national periodic regulatory goals for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. The foundation is accusing lawmakers of failing to properly clarify the standards for setting goals before passing the bill and it also says that the Ministry of Environment has simply asked government bodies how much greenhouse gas they are able to reduce rather than telling them how much they should reduce. While the environmental groups are also slamming the government's regulatory goals for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, saying they are far too short on ambition and will leave future generations with far more climate crisis and severe negative impacts, Brian. Yeah, so I think this is quite interesting because uh, particularly the environmental discourse in Taiwan is a very different register than I think internationally in many ways. Oftentimes very yoked to local issues regarding nuclear energy, for example, or local development, as in specific cases, let's say the liquefied natural gas terminal that was being built off the coast of Taurin a few uh, years ago. And so I think uh, in this respect, trying to introduce the intergenerational aspect, the notion of global climate change, the future that uh, will be left for young children in the going, growing up today, uh, that's been a salient feature of environmental discourse in Taiwan in the past, but I think it has not come up as much in present election cycles. At present, we see, for example, the KMT leaning into tax on green energy, seeing the DPP is only pushing for it because there are investments in it. And so then now we see environmental groups trying to raise this as part of the public agenda after the elections. Uh, but it is to be seen, I think, how much traction this will have among the broader public. But there is a local issue because if short-term and medium-term targets were put in place, that could lead to a reduction of the use of coal burning to generate power in Taiwan, which has some pretty serious health consequences and is a very live political issue in central Taiwan in particular. So uh, I think it can be linked to specific you know, Taiwanese concerns, which are a bit different from the global ones. The the Environmental Rights Foundation is quite interesting because its funding came from a settlement that was made when uh, the Central Science Park and environmental groups, uh, you know, reached a, a settlement at the end of litigation. And they've now produced this petition for constitutional review, which is really learned and long. It's like 124 pages long and is very impressive. It is important to emphasize that this is a very novel attempt to get constitutional review. Uh, The constitutional court, like the Supreme Court in the U.S., does not have to review cases unless it believes that a significant constitutional issue has been raised. And that's a big question here, because what they're basically saying in that 124 pages is that uh, the Constitution protects our right to life. And now they're saying the government has failed to do something that would advance our interests in our health and our life. And that's quite different from what you usually see in a constitutional case where the government has done something like reject the application to marry of same-sex couples and therefore the government's action has directly infringed upon 
you know, the arguably the right to freedom of marriage, which was eventually decided. So it's a very different thing. And I, I think the constitutional court is going to be very leery of the idea that you can bring constitutional litigation and force another branch of government, the legislature, to implement specific targets. That may be an intolerable intrusion on the executive and legislative powers. Uh, So I'm not even sure they're going to review this, although the reason for such a long petition is to to get their attention and make them feel this is important. Uh, But in any event, so in, in addition to climate change, this is going to be, if it matures into a case, is going to be an important case about the separation of powers in the Taiwanese government as well. It has many implications for lots of other, for example, could employees bring a case uh, demanding that the legislators set a hard target for the minimum wage in law? And would they be acting unconstitutionally if they failed to do so? I don't know if the constitutional court is going to go that far. So, Brian, this could open a big old can of worms, mate. Oh, it is quite interesting in this respect. I mean, it is historic in that sense, and it uh, does offer some interesting precedents for jurisprudence. Um, it is interesting, too, because I think in terms of overall discourse regarding the environment, it's usually not the judiciary that uh, is has a role in setting the public agenda. So there's much comes from the executive branch of government and the legislative branch of government. And so that could change things. That would be quite interesting. And I think traditionally then uh, the Constitutional Court has not had to make a ruling on that. So we would have to see. And before we go this week, and going back to tech, because the Market Intelligence and Consulting Institute this week released the results of a survey on the use of generative artificial intelligence. The survey showed that around 36% of people here in Taiwan have used generative artificial intelligence. And according to the government-sponsored institute, the survey found that using AI to generate text content was the most common application, followed by images, code and video. Now, the use of generative AI was found to be most common among those aged between 18 and 25, with over 60% of the people in that age group saying they had used the technology. Now, prior to starting the show, the three of us had a bit of a survey in the studio. Well, well the 36% didn't quite work out because... Brian and Michael had used the AI generative technology, but I hadn't, which just, that's, well, two to one, that's a bit more than 36%. But, Michael, you read the survey, you saw the story. What did you take away from this? Well, just first, Gavin, I would point out that since Brian and I are in the 18 to 25 age group... Ah, he's having a laugh! <laughs> it's, we, the numbers come out perfectly, and since you are not in that age group, uh, it's not hardly surprising that uh, you, you haven't used it. Um, I, I, I think that uh, uh, in, in my experience, AI is widely used, especially among younger people in Taiwan, and I think it may have uh, particularly high applications for people in Taiwan because in many ways... It now allows an educated Taiwanese person who can't write in English to produce a credible sounding text that they can then go in and tweak with, you know, specific terminology that they know from their own expertise. So it's really useful in making standard emails or drafting up a report or doing a PowerPoint presentation in English or writing a paper in your college class. Uh, and, and so I think it's uptake in that age group is not surprising at all. The, the, 
I think the numbers said that 36% of all people in Taiwan had used AI, which is pretty remarkable because the the Pew Research Center had figures from just last fall saying that only 18% of Americans have used it. So I would say Taiwan is sounds like it's ahead of the game. Of course, Brian, you're a regular user of generative AI, being a youngster. Well, not particularly, but uh, it does have some issues, I think, in terms of particularly sourcing information. And so there's the issue when generative AI is creating false claims or things that sound like it could be real but are not actually real, uh, creating connections that don't actually exist. But it can be very useful. And it's uh, interesting, too, because there have been some discussion publicly of how it could be used. I think there was some alarm from civil society groups because of the potential of using it in law cases, for example, to uh, just automate some aspects of the process. And though that could make things much simpler in many processes, there's also concerns that would lead to uh, cutting corners in other processes. But I think also it's, uh, I mean, it's increasingly discussed publicly. Every day I see these taxi cabs go by that Slav Terry Go ads on them, saying, uh, reminding of his campaign promise to automate the education of children from zero to six using AI. And so it's been part of the president election cycle too as a campaign promise because that bit of election didn't last very long Brian so we won't read too much into that but this survey did find Michael that 50% of respondents aged between 18 and 25 so not quite your age bracket mate said they were worried about the impact of generative AI on job opportunities I think they should be worried about its impact on job uh, opportunities in uh, in my personal experience with technology uh i i know there's a lot of hype about ai and it's easy to feel skeptical when you see you know your refrigerator being slapped with ai on it or or my my favorite one is right now there's um uh, there, there are a fair number of ads for massage chairs on TV, and they have now gone to branding themselves as being AI massage chairs, which is, stretches the imagination a little bit. But uh, I, I suspect that this will have the same disruptive effect that, for example, Excel had on the army of bookkeepers who used to exist and tot up figures with calculators and pencils every day before Excel came along. And millions of jobs were destroyed by Excel. On the other hand, uh, Excel is now used uh, for numbers to do all kinds of fancy reports and analysis that have produced quite a few uh, better paid jobs and made other jobs more streamlined. Uh, So, it, it seems to me that as Excel was to numbers, so too is at least generative AI to text. It's just a much faster and easier way to work with it and produce it so far. Uh, and it will have an effect on the job market. It's already having an effect on the job market. Uh, for example, copywriters and people who edit things and that kind of thing are finding that freelance jobs and even regular jobs are disappearing very quickly because AI text generation produces text which is good enough for most situations, even if it's really canned and is not going to be very much fun, for example, on a radio show or something like that, where the the imprint of a personal touch and voice is going to be so important. Uh, I'm a little surprised to hear that so many young Taiwanese are worried about its effects, because I often think that Taiwanese people or younger Taiwanese people are highly technologically optimistic. And I suspect that the 
difference is that they don't read as much science fiction, which is highly dystopian, when they're kids as the way uh, at least Americans of my generation did. So, Brian, I mean, are you concerned about your job? Because, of course, you work in the writing text media. And has New Bloom decided to run a special weekly edition focusing on this edition was brought to you by Generative AI? Well, it'd be nice. I don't know. I mean, to be honest, actually, there are many aspects of my work I would like to see automated and not have to do, because I think there is a lot of hash work. And if some of this kind of work can be automated, then I can actually turn my attention to more creative or more uh, kind of intensive, research-intensive pursuits, I think, things that AI can't do. And so I actually think that it has many useful applications for news writing or translation and uh, various jobs like that. Well, I can I can disappoint your uh, listeners by letting you know that despite all this talk about AI replacing lawyers, which I'm <laughs> sure that many in society would rejoice at, I fear that that is not going to be the case at all because the rise of AI is simply creating a vast new host of legal problems. Who's liable when AI denies your credit card application? And what happens if AI misdesigns a bridge? And what happens if a court case is decided wrongly? It's actually just creating an infinite new number of questions for a whole new army of lawyers. Or at least that's the way I see it so far. And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And by Michael Fahey. Good day. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And we won't be airing episodes of Taiwan This Week next Friday, that being February the 9th, or the following Friday, that being February the 16th, as it's the Lunar New Year holiday, of course. But we will be returning on Friday, February the 23rd, with all the top news stories from that week here in Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app, where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.